0: Praise the Lord. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with you this night. The storm has passed, and we're here, and we're safe, and we thank God for that. Uh, If you have tithes and offerings tonight, you can drop them at the tithe boxes as you're leaving tonight. As far as we're going to go into our time of a prayer devotion, I'll be bringing the devotion tonight. I've got something that the Lord has put into my heart to share with you tonight. And um, let us just begin by praying. Father, we come tonight in the precious name of Jesus Christ, Father. We have gathered in your presence. Once again, we count it a privilege and an honor to be here, Father. Father, we're believing tonight, Lord, you'll speak to our lives, God, with instruction, God, and strengthen us and encourage us, Father, with your word tonight, Father. We praise for all good things, Lord, and we give you praise in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And everybody say amen. Amen. Tonight, I'm going to be going to the, the book of Ruth. Every day our lives are full of decision making. We make decisions every day of our life and we make decisions as small as what we're going to wear today and where we're going to eat at today and those types of decisions. But tonight I want to talk more about those big life decisions that we make. Throughout our lives we've made many of those things and as your life continues you'll even make more big decisions in life. Those Those things that can affect your life, they can affect your family's life. They're decisions that can change things forever, and decisions are based upon either making a good decision or a bad decision. And If you make a good decision, good things come your way. If you make bad decisions, consequences come your way. And tonight, I want to bring in the perspective of the power of prayer and how important it is for us when we're making those life-changing decisions that we, we take it to the Lord in prayer and we pray about those things instead of just jumping out and making decisions in our flesh. and And just natural reactions a lot of times we do in those things and we don't even inquire of the Lord. And through the story of Ruth here, I'm going to pull out... Ruth is a wonderful book. It's so full of so much stuff. But I'm just going to be dealing in the first chapter of it. And uh, I want to talk about the struggles that came to their life through making a lot of bad decisions. And uh, we're going to get into the Word of the Lord. You know, being in the condition we are in a society and where some of us are circumstantially... God has expressed to me through this message. He's going to strengthen, hopefully encourage and enlighten some folks who are, and some maybe they're in the toughest places of your life tonight. Maybe you got big decisions to make. Maybe you made some decisions and they weren't good decisions. And I want to try to encourage you and help you to let you know that uh, you can get past those things. In the book of Ruth, in verse 1, it starts out by saying, In a day when the judges ruled. Here we get a historical timeline established, first of all. The time period of Judges is roughly from 1200 B.C. to 1020 B.C. before Christ. It's a time period from the time of Joshua's death to the coronation of Saul as the king of Israel. They were governed by Judges long before the appointment of kings. If you want to know more about this time period, you can go home and I encourage you to read the whole book of Judges. It's a historical account of the days of Judges who ruled in Israel. I'll tell you this. This period of time is one of the darkest, wicked, most rebellious times in Israel's history. They were surrounded by many non-Christians as we are today. Instead of being the salt and light to their culture, they repeatedly succumbed to and compromised to it, particularly in the arena of sexual temptations and immorality. Needless to say, that sounds familiar to our current condition in our society. And as a result of their actions and behavior it caused wickedness to grow from one generation to the next generation. So we're looking at one of the darkest periods of Israel's history, and verse 1 says that in the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land. Hard times were present. Economic struggle was evident. People and animals were literally starving to death at this time. The scripture here does not state it, but it makes you curious to ask, was this a judgment upon the people? Had they brought this upon themselves? Because famine, if not every time, most of the time depicts God's judgment throughout scripture. Because often when they refused to obey God, He refused to bless them. Verse 1 says, And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, it's important to note here that this man and his family are in the town of Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem mean? It means the house of bread. So take a moment and put this together and realize how ironic this situation becomes. Due to the famine, there's no food in Bethlehem, the town that is known as the, ta- as the house of bread. Here they are in the house of bread, but there is a famine like being an outback steakhouse, but they don't have any steaks. So here we go. This book is focused on one family's struggles. It's a husband, a wife, and two sons, and a famine. The husband is left with a decision. Here, we're going to start talking about decision-making. He's left with a decision to make, and that is, with the famine in our land, do I remain in Bethlehem with my family where there's no food? Or do I pack up and go where I hear there is food only 50 miles from here in a country called Moab? Seems like a no-brainer, right? I mean, what's there to think about? Your family's hungry and needs food, so he chooses to go to Moab. Same thing I probably would have done. Verse 1 says, he went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This is where we may, we may infer that it is very possible this famine is the judgment of God upon them because... Just 50 miles away from where they were, there was food. Things were good. So what the dad decides to do rather than deal with the underlying spiritual sin, which brought this judgment, he does like most men. He looked at his natural conditions. He looked at his economics and job opportunities, and he made a decision to move. He never considered the spiritual implications this decision could cause. His decision was based solely upon their physical needs. Moving at first seemed like such a logical thing to do. But the problem with wanting to go to Moab was the fact that Moab was not a place for God's people to dwell. It was not a Christian country. The Moabites are the products of incest caused from Lot having sex with his own daughter in Genesis 19. And they give birth to a son known as Moab. And from that lineage comes the tribe of the Moabites. They didn't worship Yahweh. They worshiped a God called Chemosh. They were incestuous, perverted race. Therefore, God was not pleased for his people to dwell with them. Spiritual conditions were so bad that there, perhaps when he moved his family to Moab, it could have been that they were the only Christians in the whole country of Moab at that very present time. And we're fixing to see the effects of making right decisions versus bad decisions and how important it is to your life and even your families. The failure of Limelech's decision was the fact that he allows his circumstances To dictate his decisions and never inquires of the Lord. He doesn't never pray about it. Oh, how so many of us have allowed that to happen in making decisions as well. It becomes a tragic decision to place his family and place them in the midst of this ungodly influence and culture. His decision moves them from their church, it moves them from their place of worship, it moves them from their Christian fellowship. He forsook all spiritual opportunities for the needs of the flesh. I've seen this happen often where people up and move for a career opportunity that sometimes ends in disaster, and sometimes even in spiritual death. All opportunities are not always good ones. Sometimes they're traps. Sometimes they're snares. Men and women who at times forsake all spiritual necessities for jobs, promotions, money, material gain, then three months later, not even in church, and they end up spiritually barren. They take a job where they can never come to church, they just just watch and give it time and see what happens. Spiritual decay begins to happen in their lives. In verse 2, the man's, man's name was Elimelech, which ironically means, my God is king. At this point, he wasn't acting like, much like God was his king. With the decisions he was making, he was actually willing to forsake his God. Things get hard and he runs, never inquiring of God, his king. Verse 2, and his wife now name is Naomi which means pleasant, sweet. In other words, she was a sweetheart. Remember that. Verse 2, And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. These were bizarre names when you know what they mean. Now, I know they're in the Bible, but listen to their meanings. Sick and dying. Imagine. Let me introduce you to my boys. This one's sick. And this one's dying. This one's Asian bird flu, and this one's my oldest. his name is swine flu. I mean, what were names for kids? In verse 2, they were Ephrites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab, and they lived there. Men, a serves as an example of how we must be careful as heads of our households as to how, where we lead our families to go. We have to be careful when making decisions under pressure. A wrong decision can affect your family's future. Eliminac, as a man, he had the pressure to provide, to put food on the table, roof over their head, to protect the family, to take care of his family's basic needs. When Christ has come, we must be careful not to make a foolish decision to place our family in a more vulnerable or deteriorating situation. We must consider all aspects of our decisions, both physically and spiritually. What does it prosper a man to gain the whole world only to lose his soul? What will a man exchange for his soul? How do we do this? We pray, we listen to God, and we be patient and obedient to his word. God is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. We've got to understand that everything comes from God. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen the seed begging for bread. God can send ravens and manna from heaven in the midst of famine to feed his people if he needs to. He also tells us, lean not to our own understanding, but knowledge him, and he will direct our paths. He'll help you make your right decisions. He says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. We have to realize this. Every opportunity is not necessarily a good one or of God. No matter how good it looks or how it sounds, because the enemy dangles carrots to deceive. The fruit looked pretty good in, in the Garden of Eve, but look what it costs mankind in the long run. Some things can look pretty good to us in tough situations. Another job, another city, another church, another woman, another man, can all look good in tough times, but in the long run will do more harm than good. You can ask a lot of people after making decisions that they regretted, why did you do that? And they'll say, sounded good to me at the time. Eliminate caves in under pressure. He lost hope, took things to his own hands, made a rational decision he thought. And too often the tangible is more easily rationalized As the will of God hey 50 miles from here is food that's got to be of God with all the economic woes of our country and a lot of people are making wrong decisions out of pressure operating strictly in the flesh they're feeding their carnal appetites eliminate is a tragic example of someone not counting the spiritual cost of his actions of relocating his family he was mortgaging his family's future what I mean when you decide where to live where to raise your children, you're deciding who will fellowship with them, who will fellowship with your wife, who your children will be influenced by, where your children will attend church, where your children go to school. You'll be choosing the influences of your children's lives. What culture they will adapt to, who they will marry from their surroundings. With Imelech moving to Moab, he was fixing to change his whole family's future, placing him and his wife in a place where no one knew their God. His children may be influenced by people who knew not God. This was a perverted culture. What was he thinking? His rationale and his justification was I'm doing this so that my family won't die. Sounds logical. Well stay tuned for the irony that leads lies ahead. Verse three. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, does what? He dies why did elimelech move to moab so he wouldn't die but what happened to him in moab he died now what do you think of his decision it don't say how he died we don't know heart attack hit by a camel we don't know if you're like me i have to ask why how did he die scripture says nothing and that's so typical of our lives isn't it something happens why someone dies why Tragedy, why? Affliction, why me? And at times, God doesn't answer. We even ask, why don't God answer? There's times he don't give a reason, like an Illuminati's life. The Bible says that the secret things belong to the Lord that we know in part, that we see in part. That we know everything we need to know, but we by no means know everything we want to know. That's why we must live by faith and trust God. We must understand, understand that his ways are above our ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts, and that he's past understanding, that our, inf, that our finite man, minds are no match for his infinite wisdom. That will understand it all in the sweet by and by. When we get to heaven, it'll all be revealed to us, and it'll all make sense then. So he died, no answer. The story continues. Next. Like so much in our lives, questions are left unanswered, but life goes on. Verse 3, and she was left with her two sons. There was a little bit of hope left in that. Because in that culture, her sons were required and expected to look after her. To fulfill their father's responsibility to meet their mother's basic needs. So, she should be okay. Well, verse 4 says they married Moabite women. Who did? Her two sons did. Now the story even gets sadder. Because of where they were placed by their father's decision... They were influenced to mix in their culture with these women who did not know God. Is that a problem? Yes, being unequally yoked is a problem. It's like your child marrying an atheist, and she wouldn't permit him to come to church and to worship God. The Moabites were not permitted to enter into corporate assemblies to worship God. They had their own pagan god, Kimash. It would cause problems in the home, It'll cause problems in raising the children. It'll cause problems in the family. Parents, where you live will influence who your children marry most often. Malon and Killian married two Moabite women, which was not God's plan. Now in verse 4, it says, one named Orpah, and the other one was named Ruth. And they dwelled there about 10 years. They've been married now for some time now. And you'll see in a moment, they had no children. To where, again, we wonder, is this God's curse? We don't know. But what we do know is this family is teetering on the brink of ceasing to even exist. The husband has died. The sons have no children. And there is no daughters. And the story continues. Verse 5. But Malon and Kilion do what? Also died. Both of them. Why did Elimelech move his family to Moab? So they wouldn't die. But what happened to them? They died in Moab. This story gets about as bleak and as dark as it can get for Naomi. Can you think of anything worse that could happen to a mother than to have to bury not one, but both of the only two sons that she has? To bury your husband was bad. But your sons were to outlive our kids. That's the program you signed up for. Now there's no one left. She's all alone her family is over. Not only that, but on top of it all, she's in a foreign land where no one but you has knowledge of God. There's no one to offer you spiritual comfort. There's no church to encourage you. She has no fellowship with Christians. That's bleak. She's even buried her only two sons before they were able to give her grandchildren. Her family was gone. She's broke, she's penniless, and she's alone. No one to provide for her. This is where her husband's decision placed her. Now, let me interject this. I just want to throw this in there to the men. Have a plan for your wives if you were to die. Sit down and talk. Don't just bail out and leave them holding the bag. That don't cost nothing. That was free. Verse 5. And Naomi was left without her two sons and husband. This is a picture of absolute devastation, desolation, and desperation. I love the fact that Scripture talks about life at the same degree of pain as we currently experience. How it relates to us today in our devastation, our desolation, and our despair. And serves as a guideline for us to follow to recovery. How it instructs and shines hope that what God did for them, He can do for us. How does Naomi respond to all of this? She's been away from home, Bethlehem a long time. Her husband and her sons are dead. Verse 6 says When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughter in laws prepared to return home from there. She's going back home to Bethlehem. She heard there was bread back in the house. Here, God is mentioned for the first time in the book of Ruth. Not by anyone in the story, but by the author of this story. God is mentioned 23 times in this book, but only by the author twice in chapter 1 and chapter 4. The rest of the time, it's mentioned comes from the lips of the characters in the story. So here the writer mentions God one of the two times. Here he tells us Naomi was in Moab where she heard the report that the famine was over and that God was the provider, not man. This was God blessing his people once again. And what must have went through her mind if we would have just stayed? If we would have just trusted God and never left? See, it's always too easy to look back and question your actions and your decisions. Hearing this, she decides to go back home. Here was her only hope. Here's where the mega theme of the book comes to light. Showing the providence of God and how he comes through for his people how he can make a way when there seems to be no way in your life To state that no matter how far you are from God You can come home. I Encourage you who those of you who are in crisis or those of you in an affliction or Who have wandered from God or without hope to read the whole book of Ruth? those in a place where there seems to be no way Let this word speak to your life tonight. And let it remind all of us of the providence of God. The hero of the story of the book of Ruth is ultimately God Almighty. And in this chapter is a central introduction of the theme of this book, God, the hand of the providence. You'll find that God works through history, scripture, and our lives with two hands. The first hand being the visible hand of God. Miracles that we can see such as the burning bush and the parting the Red Sea and the Virgin Mary giving birth to the Messiah, healing the lame and the blind, heals every manner of disease and sickness, miracles seen by the human eyes of many. God's visible hand of miracles are obvious. But the second hand is the hand where he works most of the time. It's the invisible hand of God, the God of providence. Some of you are in places where you're saying, I wish I could see God's hand at work. We can and we do, and it's only seen through those who have eyes to see through faith. What is faith? Faith is the substance, and so forth. But the evidence thing's not seen. Let me explain God's hand of providence. Providence, once more, God's hand of providence is the belief and acknowledgment that God is at work, whether you see it or not. You believe it because He said it. He said He wants to show Himself strong on your behalf, and He does. And when I speak of the providence of God, I'm speaking of two doctrines that must be held together. And that is that God is sovereign and that God is good. Sovereign, meaning he is the highest authority, that he rules and reigns, and there's no one above him. He's supreme authority over all. He's over Satan. He's over the demons. He's over all. He reigns and rules over all, including every detail of your life. He has the final say over everything. Everything. The doctor can say you have heart disease, but he can say you're healed. Men can say you're finished, but he can say you just started. He can say you're nothing, but he can say you're a star in the making. He has a final say. He can overcome the natural with the supernatural. He's sovereign. In addition, God is good. He's loving. He's patient. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. In Exodus, he declares that he's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness and mercy and forgiving of sin. Regardless of what you endure in life, there is two truths you must hold on to. God is sovereign and God is good. Because if you only believe God is sovereign, you'll know God is in control, but there will be circumstances in your life you'll believe he's unfair and he's unjust and he's uncaring. That's not who our God is, folks. He declares, I'm a God that will stick closer to you than a brother. A God who declares, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. And that his thoughts toward you you are of peace and not of evil. There are things that happen every day that are not God's will. And they're called sin. Sin affects innocent people every day. God has no part of sinful acts or evil. Matter of fact, God has found in scripture to become angry when his people are victims of such injustices. And it moves him to deal with the people harshly who commit these kinds of sins upon his people. God declares that vengeance is mine. He told her, God is the one who's going to heal you and bring you through your crisis. God declares the battle's not yours, it's mine. Why? Because he's righteous. God is sovereign, God is good, and you cannot separate the two. Or you'll have a mixed up theology about God. Before sin entered into the world, no one died. But why do our bodies die of diseases? Because sin brought forth death. That's why God sent a Savior to redeem us, to take us from this world of suffering to a place where there's no more going to ever be any more sickness or dying or sorrow. There's no sin in heaven. It cannot enter in. That's a sovereign and a good God that would come to rescue us. A God would give his only begotten son to die for the sins of the world. He made a way out of this present dark world. Regardless of what you go through, he works it out for your good and his good. In Genesis 50, 20, remember, Joseph's brother did horrible things to him. Only for one day to come, for him to sit down face to face with him, he had an opportunity to finally get even with his brothers. But instead he told them, What you intend for evil, God used it for the good and the saving of many lives. God's not only sovereign, but God is good. But on the other hand, if you only believe God is good and not sovereign... You'll believe he's not over everything. You won't trust him with everything. You will believe he can do this, but he can't do that. You'll believe there are some situations that are out of his control. You'll have doubts due to the level of your circumstances. Well, I know he can heal diabetes, but hey, this is cancer we're talking about. You believe God is just as surprised as you are about your conditions. That he didn't even see it coming either. That he didn't even know it before you told him. I want you to know that God is omniscient, all-knowing. He knew before you ever knew it. Scripture reveals that nothing is too hard for our God, that nothing is impossible with God. God is not only good, He is sovereign. Here in our text, we see the invisible hand of God, the hand of providence at work in Naomi's life, but she doesn't see it. All of a sudden, with everything she's been through, Bethlehem, that was famine-stricken, is now a land of bread again. Food's back on the table. Crops are in the field. Hope is in the hearts of people again. And it was God who did it. Verse 7, she says that it's that I'm leaving Moab. I'm going home. I'm going back to where God is blessing and to where God's people are. I'm not going to remain here any longer. They start walking, and after a few steps, they stop and have a conversation, one of the many they will have. You know, when you get three women together, they got to talk. Do you know that 55 of these 85 verses in this book is dialogue? Why? Because we got three women talking. Men, you're weak. That was your chance to say amen. Women got to talk about it. So, men, it's biblical when they want to talk. You just better listen. Now, here's the conversation, verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go back, each of you. Go back to your mother's home. In other words, go home. Go. I got nothing. I'm broke. Family's gone. You got no future with me. You're still young. Go to your mom's. Where I'm going, you won't fit in. I appreciate your loyalty. I love you too, but go. Then she prays for them, it says. She prays, May the Lord show kindness to you as you've shown to your dad and me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find the rest in the home of another husband. The book of Ruth contains a lot of prayers. There's two things, though, about prayers in the book of Ruth that I find interesting. Number one, no one prays for themselves. They only pray for each other. And every prayer is answered by the end of the book. Prayers are answered, church, because the fact that what? Because God is sovereign and God is good. It's all the more reason to pray. Because whatsoever you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Prayer is a sub-theme of this story. There's so much we're going to dig out. Just stay with me for a little bit longer. She prays, even though I have nothing, God give them everything. God give them a good man. Give them a good marriage. Give them a good home. She's so unselfish. And verse 9 says, then she kissed them and they wept aloud. These are women who love each other. Been through a lot together. They've stood by each other. But Naomi says, I love you, but I wish you the best. But we must part to do what's right. Thinking of the interest of the girls, not selfish. Making, she believes, a right decision. And in verse 10, and they said to Naomi, we'll go back with you to your people. They plead with her. We're going to Bethlehem with you. We're not leaving you. You need us. We need you. We'll figure this out together. But in verse 11, Naomi says, My daughters, notice how she felt about them. She says, Go home. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who who could become your husbands? In other words, I have nothing to give you. I'll be nothing but a burden to you. You're still young. You girls can start over. You can still have a family, but not with me. And in verse 12, Return home, my daughters. I am too old for a husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? Here's what she's saying. I'm an old woman who'll probably never marry again. If I did, I'd probably never have kids again. If I did, are you going to wait 20 years to marry them? How old will you be then? Ladies, go home. Get your life back together. Start over. And then she goes on to say, No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Who is Naomi ultimately holding responsible for her pain and suffering and grief she is experiencing? God, because of her circumstances. She is seeing him only as sovereign, but not as good. Remember, you got to see him as both. I don't know what you think, but I think her husband's decisions had a lot to do with her circumstances. It wasn't God's will for them to move to Moab. And like I said, bad decisions bring about bad consequences. God never told them to go there, so there's consequences to bad decisions. That's why you never leave God out of your decision-making that concerns the welfare of you or concerns the welfare of your family. God is always for you and not against you. He wants you to prosper and be good health as your soul prospers. Elimelech had positioned them there by his own human reasoning though in an ungodly culture because he didn't trust God in the toughest time of his life. He didn't see him as sovereign, as in control. Her believing her husband was part to blame shows she's believing God was sovereign because she believes he could have stepped in and stopped the move. But God will allow you to use your permissive will. How many know finding yourselves in situations you're in present can relate to where Naomi is coming from? God, I know I did this and I did that and that I might not have always done this or that. But you could have stopped it. You could have showed up. And all along, God is there. And God is working on your behalf. You've just lost sight of him because you've lost faith. Your faith has been rocked by your circumstances. But know this, your circumstances don't change ever who God is. He's sovereign, and he's good. And you have to always see him as both, in control and working for your good. Why did she lose sight? She seen God as sovereign, but not as good. She allowed her circumstances to dictate her to her, her response and how she was going to respond. She sees him as against her. And I'm going to stop right there tonight, and I'm going to close Can I tell somebody in this room tonight who's made a bad decision? You can come back home. There's bread in the house of the Lord. There are consequences to bad decisions, but God is right there always waiting for you to come home and make right decisions so that he can bless you. God's not against you. He's for you. That's a lie of the enemy. I want to pray you that you get this. He's sovereign over all. He's good. And you must see him as sovereign and good. It will change your perspective. It will invite hope back into your life. It will encourage your faith. I want us to take some time tonight to pray. And I hope that these, these words thus far have brought a new perspective to you of who God is and reveal to you how important it is that you pray about those life-changing decisions and just don't rationalize things in your human flesh and your human nature that in all things, through prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God, all things. That your circumstances that brought you the bad to your life were not created by God. God is the one who's going to save you, heal you, deliver you, provide for you, A lot of our circumstances because of bad decisions have brought our life pain and sorrow. And for some, your circumstances were created in your life because of someone else's sin even, not because of what you did. God's not a part of causing anything bad to happen to you. His part is to make the bad good in your life. He'll turn what the enemy meant for the bad to your good like he did for Naomi. And if you don't view him as sovereign, having authority over everything and good, You'll have a messed up and confused view of God. And you will believe you deserve what you're going through. She did. Or you can't get over what you've done. She couldn't. Or that you're in an impossible situation. She thought she was. But I've come to tell you, with God, nothing is impossible to those who believe. But you've got to believe that he's sovereign and that he's good. Because there is an invisible hand of God working on your behalf. The God of providence. And the only way you'll see it is through faith. I'll ask you to stand with me tonight if you would.